Well, if you would open with me uh, your copy of God's Word to uh, the book of John, and uh, we come now to chapter 6. Over the last few weeks, uh, Pastor Jeff has been emphasizing uh, the divinity of Christ uh, found in chapter 5 and uh, demonstrated in the healing uh, of the man in the uh, pool of Bethesda or at the pool of Bethesda. He didn't, he didn't have to go in. Jesus was sufficient for that. Uh, but uh, also after that, Jesus uh, showing us the various witnesses uh, that were demonstrating His divinity uh, throughout um, uh, the, uh, the rest of uh, chapter 5. And so now, uh, going into chapter uh, 6, uh, we recognize that uh, Jesus, if you are, are looking at uh, His ministry uh, militarily, uh, He is coming in, He's striking uh, at the Pharisees with the sword of truth, and then He retreats again uh, to Galilee, which is where we uh, find Him in chapter 6. Now, if you're familiar with the flow of Jesus' ministry throughout the synoptic gospels, the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they show there's a few more events that occur between uh, John 5 and 6, uh, and so John is kind of a more broad brush as to what is going on in Jesus' ministry, but it also helps us see Jesus' brilliant strategy uh, of what He is trying to accomplish. He is healing people. And he is progressing to gather more people as his followers and picking up more and more as he heads north, growing that number up to 5,000 men and adding the women and children, probably 15 to 20,000 people following Jesus. And the people hungered for his help. You know that every human is motivated by two things, the decrease of pain and the increase of pleasure. Now, people hungered for the decrease of pain of their diseases, of their ailments, of their handicaps. Jesus and His disciples had been laboring among these, this throng of people for many days, and they were tired. They needed a break. They wanted to decrease their pain and increase their pleasure of rest and of food and of being able to have a break. And so they got into a boat and they crossed over the Sea of Galilee to the other side, and yet the people followed them. They made their way around that large lake. And these signs that the people saw that Jesus was doing, they recognized that He was probably something greater than just a rabbi. And it was an increase of the pleasure for the people to think that their hero had come. And so as we come to this text, John chapter 6, we will learn this morning to trust God's provision by identifying His abundance in all of life. That we will learn to trust God's provision by identifying His abundance in all of life. And we're going to observe Jesus addressing three different hungers in our lives, and that Jesus alone can satisfy the hunger for help, the hunger for hospitality, and the hunger for a hero. So please follow with me as I read John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. This is the word of the living God. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. 
Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that they had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you have probably heard it said that the fastest way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Now, if you hadn't heard that, well, now you have. And you may not know, though, that it came from uh, one of the founding fathers of America, John Adams. Now, what he actually said was the shortest road to men's hearts is down their throats. So, even more graphic. But this classic American proverb demonstrates an ancient truth that has been known for a very long time, even by our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that he would get everybody's attention by feeding the multitude, but he did not do it to manipulate uh, the people to following him. He did it to reveal their hearts. Now, do we follow Jesus for his gifts? Or do we follow the giver himself? Every follower of Jesus must discern our own heart's motives for why we follow him. Do we love Jesus for who he is or merely for what he gives me? We know from Scripture that Jesus is indeed the great physician, and so he did miracles of healing. And if you or one of your loved ones have cancer or some kind of chronic illness or pain, you too would be longing for the moment when Jesus would heal you immediately, right? Not over a progressive, you know, long period of time, but just immediately you go from the state you were to full healing, and that would just be amazing. That would grab every one of our attentions, and we would want that for ourselves and for our loved ones. So we understand why the crowd would follow Him. And so first we learn that Jesus alone can satisfy the hunger for help. Look again at verse 1. After this, Jesus went up or went away to the other side of the sea, to the sea, other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing 
on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples, and now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And so as this crowd um, had been following them and growing in number probably for months, Jesus had even sent the 12 disciples out during this time frame between chapter 5 and chapter 6. He sent the 12 out for them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He even gave the power to them. Now, this was certainly exciting for them, but it was also exhausting right? Back together again uh, at the Sea of Galilee, they crossed over the lake together to the mountain to get some rest. But Jesus knew the crowd would meet them on the other side because they hungered for His help. I mean, talk about a flash mob, right? I mean, just imagine being the disciples, and they're just like, you know, watching as this mob just comes around the sea, and, you know, 20,000 people is not hard to miss, right, when they're, they're gathering uh, to find uh, Jesus and His apostles as they swarm the area. Now, as we said, there's a mix of motivations of all the different people uh, that are gathering uh, to be in that place. Uh, there are quite a number of them that want the help of healing, right? Jesus had healed the demon-possessed man, that He had uh, healed the woman that had the issue of blood for 12 years. He healed Jairus' daughter, and also the man by the pool of Bethesda. Everyone would be trying to get themselves and their loved ones as close to Jesus and the apostles as possible. But there's others who wanted help with harassment, right? People had suffered under Roman oppression for many years and even under the harassment of the Jewish leaders. And so, recognizing that Jesus' healing was a sign that He was something greater. And so, we read in Isaiah chapter 29, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. People started to hope again. Could this be the Messiah? Could He truly be here to set the captives free? But there were also others who just wanted help with boredom, right? Miracles are exciting entertainment for people. I mean, who would not get caught up in the spectacle of Jesus healing the sick and then just the fact that there was this humongous crowd following Him, right? We would just be interested, okay, what's going on, right? If we were sitting in here and we saw 20,000 people walk past our church, it would probably get our attention. You would not be listening to me. You'd be looking out the window and, I, I mean, is you know, something happening? You know, is there just some tragic event or whatever. You know, you would get distracted and you would be drawn to that. But when we think about that uh, movement of people, right, as they go through various towns, right, people are just like, oh, the FOMO just kicks up, right? That fear of missing out. We just don't want to miss what's going on in the life uh, of other people. And so, these motives, the, all, all three of them, or a multitude of other ones, usually kind of stay below the surface Uh, of our hearts uh, until some type of an event uh, brings them 
to mind, right? And so, uh, the opportunity that Jesus is presenting in feeding all of these people is to help them each to discern their own hearts. Now, all of us have a mixture of motives for following Jesus. I mean, I remember when I first came uh, to faith in Christ, I was 19 years old and uh, started watching D. James Kennedy on TV, and my, my mom had pointed me to him, and he was answering you know, the questions that I had in college, trying to figure out, you know, what, what is this all about? What's the Bible all about? Who is God? You know, what are all these things? And, you know, I had a near-death experience, and I wanted to know, I wanted to be sure, right, that I could be in heaven with God if, or when, whatever day I would die, whether it was soon or whether it was later, I just wanted to have that certainty. And then the more I read the Scriptures, the more that I spent time um, in the Word, I got convicted of my sin, and I recognized how selfish I am. I recognized how, how much uh, sin I have committed that I need forgiveness for, and that motive drove me to the cross of Christ. But it wasn't my only motive, right? I got a bit of attention from people that I hadn't had uh, for much of my life. I mean, you know, when uh, you show up to Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church as a, a long-haired surfer dude, uh, some of you don't know that my hair was down to my shoulder blades, long blonde hair. You would never know it now because there's not much left. But, um, you know, at that time, I was a bit of a spectacle, and, and so much so that, you know, this, this kid that came from being involved in Native American ceremony and worshiping this great spirit and all that stuff comes out of that, and, uh, and, and God grabs a hold of him, and so they put me on the Coral Ridge Hour. So millions of people around this country heard my testimony, and I got a bit of attention, well, great benefit to coming to Jesus. You get some other stuff too. And so those motives, right, they get all mixed uh, in the benefits of following Jesus. And so we all need to examine our hearts of, of what are my real motives for doing the things that I do, right? We all attend church, right? What's our primary motive? Do we come because it's the pattern that we've inherited from our parents? Do we come because it's what good people do? Do we come because it's what Christians do? Do we come because the holy God that created all things is worthy of our worship? And I'm going to guess it's a mixture of all of those and more, right? What about our prayer lives, right? The majority of requests on our prayer lists are for healing, right? And we are not wrong to be asking for prayer for healing. But when we examine the biblical prayers, the ones, you know, Paul is praying in in his letters and in other places, right, 95% of them are about our spiritual health, and only 5% are about physical health. And so we need to intercede for one another, yes, for our physical health, but we also need to intercede for one another for our spiritual health. And what about our commitment to study God's Word? Maybe you have a regular devotion time, and is that time a true meeting with the living God, or is it checking the box of our Christian duties, right? Do you, uh, as a life group, do you spend time in God's Word as a priority? Do you just savor that time together with one another, or is it perhaps common that the fellowship time starts to crowd out uh, that time in God's Word? Whatever we are hungering for, these are the things that Jesus wants to bring to our attention for us to recognize what is our true heart's motive is driving us. Now, we also need to examine our practice of making disciples of unbelievers, 
right? This is not merely a task given to the apostles or given to full-time clergy or missionaries, right? Every believer is called to make disciples. We need to intentionally engage in relationships with people who don't know Christ. I know that most of us are hindered by a variety of different kinds of fears, right? But we need to recognize that Jesus has promised to be with us, right? Even to the end of the age, that He walks with us in those relationships, and that He can use us, right? Though we don't have it all together, though we don't have the answer to every question, that He has given us His Holy Spirit to give us the words, to give us the wisdom of how to connect with that person, just sharing what has God done in my own life, right, as an easy segue, right, into, okay, what, what's He doing in your life, and, and how could uh, what Christ has done for us uh, affect your life? Now, we must, must be intentional about it. It's not just going to happen naturally. It never is going to happen naturally. Uh, we have to be intentional, but we also have to be in regular prayer for that. And so, as we enter into March for Missions, praying for missionaries around the world, we also pray for being missionaries locally. And we recognize the great importance uh, that there is for how many people are hungering out there for the help of Jesus. They just don't know it until we share that with them. And so we learn, first of all, that Jesus satisfies our hunger for help, but secondly, He also satisfies the hunger for hospitality. Look at verse 5. Lifting up His eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward Him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test Him for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Notice that Jesus asked Philip a question to test him, right? The Lord commonly comes to people in the Scriptures and even to our own lives to test our hearts with questions, right? What did he say to Adam? How dare you eat from the tree? No. He just said, where are you? Right? Simple question. He checks our hearts with questions. And what did Philip demonstrate was in his heart, right? Now, just let's recognize what Philip had just experienced, right? Watching Jesus heal these people, being sent out by Jesus, and a part of the healing of other people. But his focus was on their physical limitations, not on the power of a miracle-working Jesus, The hunger for hospitality of 20,000 people was real. Many of these people had traveled from Jerusalem. Many had not eaten in days. They had real needs, and Jesus wanted the disciples to show care for normal needs, not just miraculous healing. But caring for so many would demonstrate first the hospitality of Jesus' generosity. Right, Philip estimated 200 denarii, which is 200 uh, days of labor. Today, if you took the you know, median average or whatever, it'd be about fifteen dollars or $20,000. In other words, a dollar per person. Right? It would only give each person a morsel, is Philip's point. But Jesus would demonstrate God is a God of abundance and generosity. He says in verse 8, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, 
but what are they for so many? Now, Andrew was always a very positive and energetic and helpful, but even he saw something that was so large in need that it was probably beyond them. He had yet to understand the hospitality of Jesus' divinity, not only his generosity, but also his divinity. Now, many preachers have tried to give background to what, you know, was the life of this little boy. It doesn't exist in the Scriptures, so you can speculate all you want, but what matters is what the Word of God actually says. The feeding of the 5,000 is a fulfillment of the ministry of Elisha. And so we're going to read from 2 Kings chapter 4 and see how Jesus is the even greater prophet than Elisha, right? 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 42. A man came from from Baal-Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his stack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. And so he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Now, in this context, the first fruits, right, were this man's tithe to the Lord. And we're not saying the boy brought a tithe to Jesus, but what we are seeing from this Old Testament story is that God multiplies the tithe of His people to demonstrate His generosity and His divinity. Now, we may only receive a bite of God's Word in our devotions, but the Lord can still multiply its effect in our hearts, right? You might get distracted uh, during the listening of a sermon, but you might get one morsel, right, that the Lord uses in your heart, and He multiplies the effect of that in your life. And now, with this Old Testament background, we come to the miracle itself of Jesus fulfilling the ministry of Elisha, showing Himself to be an even greater prophet in John 6, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, He told His disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, as was normal, his God-honoring pattern, Jesus gave thanks to his heavenly Father for the blessing of his generous provision. Now, we have no idea exactly what it looked like for Jesus to multiply the bread. Was it all at once? I'm guessing not. We don't know. But I'm thinking that, you know, it just says in the other Gospels that he broke the loaves and distributed. And so I just picture him continuing to break. And he breaks and he breaks, and he breaks, and it continues spreading and spreading and spreading more and more. And again, this was not just, uh, you know, everybody getting one little piece, right? I mean, he uh, multiplied the bread and the fish as much as they wanted. They had eaten their fill. So, this was a feast that Jesus was providing. 
but Jesus also does not waste, right? Waste not, want not, right? Whether we have abundance or we have just a morsel, we should not be wasteful with anything that the Lord provides to us, right? Now, in the generosity and the divinity that Jesus is demonstrating by this miracle, we have 12 baskets of leftovers, right? Is that symbolizing God's provision for the 12 tribes of Israel? Maybe, but I would say more likely it's one basket per apostle because they had not eaten yet, right? So they all needed some as well. And so Jesus showed his disciples what godly hospitality looks like, but he did not leave out his disciples from also enjoying the meal. Now, when you invite people to your home, right, you usually let the guests go first if you're doing it buffet style or even if you're serving from the table, right? We want our guests to be given a place of honor and of preference. And so Jesus was showing that generosity even in the meal he was providing, right? But this doesn't just apply to meals. Hospitality is much broader than that when given to us in the Scriptures, right? We as Christians believe this is our Father's world. And so when we acknowledge this is not just His house, but that this is our Father's world, that we are called as His followers to be generous with people and to show care, to host them, to be kind to them, to be generous by demonstrating the grace of God that has been abundantly blessing to each one of us. And so ask yourself, how does my care of other people demonstrate the generous hospitality of our God? Maybe you don't have much, and maybe you struggle thinking that you would only have people over if you can provide a huge feast. Well, giving generously from the little we have, right, is what shows a truly godly heart of stewardship, right? In the parable of the talents, uh, the master said in chapter Matthew 25, verse 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Again, this does not just apply to giving meals. Any resource that you possess, however great, however small, the Lord has called us to steward whatever that is with a view to eternity, not just the day to day. It says in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Lord always tests our hearts in how we steward the resources that He gives us. We must trust God's provision and invest whatever we have in eternity. We waste our eternal rewards when we only focus on this life. This is Jesus' main concern. He didn't come as just the maker of meals. He came as the King of kings. And so we learn lastly that Jesus provides for our hunger for a hero. First, our hunger for His help. Second, our hunger for hospitality. And third, our hunger for a hero. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, why would they say that? 
Why was that the focus of their minds? Well, they were familiar with the Scriptures, and they know from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses said, from among you and from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. There was lots of prophets after the time of Moses. Were they the prophet that is referred to in Deuteronomy 18? The example we saw with Elisha when God multiplied the bread for a hundred men and had leftovers is probably the closest parallel to what the people were thinking. But Jesus is no mere prophet. He knew that they didn't just want a prophet. What the people wanted Just as they demonstrated to the time right after Moses, the people were demanding a king. Verse 15 says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, what motive was driving the people to try to force Jesus to become king? All the motives that I've mentioned and more, right? Some love the idea of having this permanent healer as king. Others love the idea of having, you know, free lunches every day. You know, others hope that he would overcome their oppressors. But those are not the heart motives that motivated Jesus. Jesus did not come as a temporary hero. He came as Savior of the world with an eternal plan. And so he disappeared into the mountain by himself to rest and to let the people go their way. Now, sometimes we only worship Jesus as God, and we don't recognize who he is as man. Do you believe in a tired Jesus? Doesn't seem to go together, does it? Do you believe he had physical limitations as a man? I mean, yes, he did miracles, and yes, even in his resurrection body that was physical, he was able to pass through the tomb wall as well as the locked door of his disciples. But he still got hungry. Even in his glorified body, he sat with them by the lake and ate. He got tired, he needed sleep. Jesus demonstrated the pattern for us of obedience to the fourth commandment that all of us, I mean, if Jesus needs rest, (laughs) I think every single one of us most certainly needs rest. Now, we have many fantastic stories in our culture about heroes saving the day. The heroes don't seem to ever need rest, right? They always are just out there just saving the world. And we like the idea of heroes for a lot of reasons. One, because they take care of things we can't do, but a lot of times they take care of our responsibilities as well. And so it's like, yeah, go ahead, do it. Take care of it. No big deal. Right? There's others of us that want to be the hero, right? So we take on more responsibilities than are actually ours to bear, right? Because we want to be that person who does it all. But whatever direction we go, we look at Jesus' pattern, and he says we're not to be seeking after the hero to solve our problems and certainly not to become that hero. He equipped his disciples for the work of ministry. He sent them out to be helpful to people. 
And after serving faithfully, he called them to take a season of rest. This Sabbath principle is needed to order every one of our lives so that that is what drives us, is our faith in God more than the worldly drive for more. We all need one day in seven to cease from our labors, to celebrate God's generous provisions. Now, for pastors, I'll just tell you, it's not Sunday. We normally take Monday. We need rest. We need vacation time, just like you do. And so, we prayed this morning, and I would encourage you to keep praying for Pastor Jeff and Karen as they get true rest on their vacation. But the session has also recognized the Sabbath principle of seven years of labor, and they have approved a sabbatical policy for their three full-time pastors. And we'll be providing more information about that in the future. But the point is, we as pastors are weak and only able to do a limited amount, right? We know that we disappoint your expectations on a regular basis. And that is why we always want to point you to the all-sufficient, generous provision of Jesus. We alone depend on that no matter what we're doing, but He alone can truly satisfy all the needs of your heart and of your life. No matter what sermon you hear, no matter what uh, teaching you listen to or what counsel you seek, Jesus alone can satisfy. Because He alone lived the perfect life that each one of us failed to live. That He alone died the death in our place for our sin. And that He alone rose again from the dead to conquer sin, death, and the devil so that we have faith in Him, we might have the hope of eternal life. But I want you to know that life does not begin at death. That life begins when Jesus awakens your heart to true life And he wants you to know the joy of that life today and to share the blessings of that life with others that you know. Whatever resources he's given you, as we share the little bit that we have and watch it multiplied among the people in our lives, people will see the abundance of God's provision, whatever those things are that God has provided. And we will see in our own hearts, and we will demonstrate to the whole world that Jesus indeed is Lord. Let's pray.